this morning we're going to come together and we're going to continue our study in Ephesians chapter 2, so you might want to open your Bibles with me to the second chapter of Ephesians. We'll be starting in Ephesians 2.14. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you have revealed to us. Today, as we look at this very important passage, begin to break it down and to study this, there are so many things we're going to learn and be reminded of. Father, help us to see not only what they mean, but their implications for the way we think and the way we act. For there are things embedded in this passage that are profound and that stretch our understanding. But above all, it helps us to understand who we are in Christ, the importance of the church as the body of Christ, and this unique thing you are doing, and the privilege that we have as being a member of and part of the body of Christ, being in Christ, the many part of the many blessings that you have blessed us with. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians 2.14. We'll do kind of an overview of the next four verses, which are an explanation of the previous three verses, which sort of summarize the section that begins in verse 11 and goes down to verse 22. In this section, we have quite a few things to unpack and to develop, and it all focuses on what Christ has done in this very first line that we have in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. So what I want to do is just begin with a little review, starting in just at the back uh, last three verses. So we gain the context for when you look at that first word, you ought to circle it or box it or color it or underline it for When you have these words like for and therefore and since and in light of and as far as, those are very important words and they help us to track the thinking, the development, the logical flow of what is being said in the text. So that verse 14, when it begins with the word for, tells us that it's explaining something or developing something out of what was just said in verses 11 through 13. Therefore... Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, very important statement, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far, once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So just to summarize where, where we've been and what we've learned, is Ephesians 2.11 reminds us of the former division which existed between Jew and Gentile. And, it, the, and this is marked by the haughty arrogance of the religious Jews, specifically the Pharisees, but there were others that were conservative, and the thinking among the Jews at the time was that circumcision was so important that it was actually the basis for salvation, and they were saved and nobody else was saved, and that salvation for the Jews was totally dependent upon their their heritage, their lineage from Abraham. And if they were a descendant of Abraham, they were, they were saved. So they looked down, they had this attitude of superiority over all of the Gentiles, and it, it was one of the worst forms of of prejudice. It was based on a spiritual arrogance as well as a racial arrogance. And this is what caused just this, this great division. And so Paul reminds the Gentiles that they were looked on this way by the Jews. Now, there's a certain irony here. If you think about the Greeks, the Greeks are the ones that gave us the word barbarian. The Greeks had this same sort of ethnic superiority over everyone else. And because foreign languages sounded to them as if somebody was just saying bar, 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 they referred to uh, all non-Greeks as barbarians. And so here you have a primarily Greek uh, background uh, uh, people in Ephesus, although it's not in Greece, it's in Turkey, but the western part of Turkey or Asia Minor at that time had been inhabited by by Greeks for uh, several centuries. Uh, they are they look down on everybody else, but they're looked down upon uh, by the Jews. And so Paul reminds them of this this prejudice, this hostility, and this arrogance. Secondly, what we learned was since the call of Avram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a new age had begun. Okay? Uh, you have the age of the Gentiles from Adam to Abraham, and from Abraham to the day of Pentecost, you have the age of Israel. And so we looked at this chart that God began with the first age of the Gentiles, which is subdivided into three dispensations, and that ended with the uh, with the uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And because the Gentiles had failed in their mission that's laid out in the covenant with Noah, God determines that he will, from that point on, just work through a specific people. Not because they were inherently good, not because they were smarter than everybody else, not because they were brighter, because God continuously through Scripture reminds them that they're they're the most stubborn, rebellious, idolatrous people. He's just, at times, he's just on the verge of just being fed up with them. But God chose them out of his grace to be the 
ones through whom he would provide the line of the Savior, through whom he would, through them he would give the um, the, the law, uh, would give the prophets, would give the writings of the Old Testament, and through them he would bless all of the nations. So that there is a break that comes with God's plan for Israel at the cross based on the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel, that there is a break. There's still seven years left in the age of Israel, and that won't be fulfilled until the future tribulation. But there's this break that occurs that is the current church age where God does something unexpected. God does something that was not prophesied and is uh, totally uh, different from anything else that he has done. And then in the future, there'll be the Messianic age. And those are the ages of God's plan, not the dispensations. Dispensations are subdivisions. What distinguished Israel, as a third point of summary, was a covenant, a contract, a special blessing that was, that God set forth in a contractual form where he, uh, where he promised certain things to Abraham, and he committed himself to the fulfillment of these promises unconditionally, no matter what Abraham or his descendants would do. So it was an eternal covenant, a unilateral covenant, which means God alone committed himself to the covenant. This is indicated in Genesis uh, chapter 15 when they have a sacrifice, and, God, and the animals are split in two is what's typical in the ancient world when you, when you did this is both parties would walk between the halves of the sacrifices. But God puts Abraham to sleep and God, uh, symbolized by a smudge pot goes through, walks between the two halves indicating that he alone is the one bound to this contract no matter what Abraham does. So it's an eternal, unilateral, and permanent covenant. It will not be replaced. And this is described in Genesis 15 and Genesis chapter 17. So as we have studied, the Abrahamic covenant had two, had three components, land, seed, and blessing. The land meant that God not only distinguished the Jewish people as being uh, the ones through whom he would give all of these blessings related to the coming of the Messiah, but that he would bless all the rest of the, the re- human race through the Jews. But now he's going to give them special land. Nobody else has a right to their land. The French don't have any right to their land. The Italians have no right to Italy. The Germans have no right to Germany. We have no right to the United States. The only piece of real estate that God has given to anybody is that piece of real estate in the Middle East of Israel that God promised to, to Abraham. And that's it. And that really makes other people mad. That's the fountain of anti-Semitism is because God chose to bless Israel and not the others in this way. And so they rejected God's plan and got mad at the Jews. Second, there's the promise of the seed through the Davidic covenant and the promise of future worldwide blessing that would come through the seed and that eventually is worked out in history in the new covenant when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. So the Abrahamic covenant is distinguishes the Jews from the Gentiles. Fourth thing that we learned is the phrase at that time, which we see in 
in verse uh, 12 at the very beginning that at that time uh, refers to the time period of the age of Israel. It is not related to at that time when you weren't saved because things changed on the day of Pentecost. They didn't change when those individual Ephesian Gentiles trusted in Christ as Savior. And so during that age, five things characterized the Gentiles as a whole, as a class of people. They were, as we have studied, without Christ. They had no concept of a Messiah. There was no prophecy given to Gentiles of a future coming Messiah unless they learned it from the Jews. Second, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is the, the, the theocratic entity of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they were separated from that and from the law and all of the blessings that accrued from that. Third, they were strangers from the covenants of promise, and that's the ones we just went through, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And fourth, they had no hope because they did not understand anything about the Messiah, anything about God's plan. They had no future certainty. That's the idea of hope is a confident future uh, and a certain future of blessing. And they were without God in the world unless they learned of God from the Jews. Fifth thing we learned from our study is that uh, when we read this statement in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus is parallel to what we read back in 2.4 where Paul says you were born dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1. and verse 4 it says, but God who is rich in mercy. So it's that kind of a contrast. But here it is, but now in Christ Jesus. And so again, it, it, it emphasizes our uh, new place, our new position uh, in Christ and now in Christ, and what it says in the conclusion of the verse, but now in Christ you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we studied that phrase last time because we need to understand that it is a figure of speech for the death of Christ. And so you can just do a simple word substitution if you want to get the literal meaning. We have been brought near by the death of Christ. It is the death of Christ on the cross that is what secures us our new position. It is that death on the cross that is referred to in verse uh, verse 14 that he broke down the middle wall of, of separation. That was done by his death. It abolished in his flesh, physically, hanging on the cross, it abolished the enmity or the hostility of the law that separated Jew and Gentile so that he could make peace. We'll look at the details of that in just a minute. And if we look down in verse 18, through him, that is through his death, we now have access uh, to the Father. So that becomes foundational to what we're looking at. And so that summarizes what we've seen and those three verses serve as an, a setup, a summary, an introduction to what comes in verses 14 through 22. Now, verses 14 through 22 are some of the most significant verses 
in all of the New Testament related to the church, related to who we are in Christ, and related to the transaction of what uh, was accomplished on the cross. And as we look at this, it gives us two major explanations. First of all, it explains the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. They express there's this enmity, this hostility uh, between Jew and Gentile that, that what we'll see contextually is this is from the law. Uh, so there, there's this, this hostility there. So there's a reconciliation that occurs, a peace that the two, the both, verse 14, are made one. We look at that word both, and we saw it once before back in Ephesians 2, uh, looking back at verse 5, uh, where, where we learn, uh, verse 4 says, but God, rich in mercy, and then verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together, that the both refers to the together. The together is the Jew and Gentile. Raised us up together and seated us together in the heavenlies. And so that, that, that describes who the both are that are described in, uh, in verse 15, that we have been made, both made uh, one, or excuse me, verse 14, who has made both one. And so we look at this, this, the second thing is that not only have Jew and Gentile been reconciled, but there is a reconciliation of all humanity to God. Now that's where we tend to jump to. But what's important is first Paul is saying, first of all, and this is what makes it a little ambiguous in this section, there is peace between Jew and Gentile. But then there's peace between Jew and Gentile and God. So there's two, two, as it were, two barriers. The law created a barrier between Jew and Gentile, but sin created a barrier between uh, Jews and Gentiles or all of the human race and God. And so there's actually two barriers that are mentioned here. Now let's look at these three verses, or we'll start with the first three verses. This is all one sentence, so it's important to think our way through this. As I've said many times, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul how, how, why you brush your teeth, he would start in Genesis 1 and explain God is the creator, and God is the creator of the human body, and God created you with teeth, and because you are a steward representing uh, God to the human race, that so you have to take care of that which God gave you, which is all of your body, including your teeth. And he would then explain why you have teeth. He would start there, because that's what he does in many places. He always goes back to creation and goes through all of these details, and often he does it in one long sentence. And what happens when we look at our English translations is often they'll break those long sentences down into uh, several easy-to-grasp sentences for those who can only read at the third-grade level in our culture today. And so we miss some of the nuances of what's going on in the text. So this is all one sentence in, 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 in the Greek. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity 
that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, there is a lot that is said there. And I want to skim over the surface of this, these three verses, one sentence. And then the second sentence of the paragraph is verses 17 and 18. And just to give us an idea, sort of a, a bird's eye view of what Paul is talking about here. So he begins by saying, first of all, that Christ is our peace. For he himself is our peace. Christ is the peace. He has made the peace between Jew and Gentile. And it is all about Christ. It is not God the Father. It is clearly Christ that is the focal point here. And he did this because he brought us near by his death. Okay, so that's the first thing we see here. The second thing is what he did. So actually, verse 14 describes what Christ did. First of all, he's our peace. Second, he made both one. And I've already said this, that the both, that both is a term that refers to two. Now, that may seem rather elementary for some of us, but recently I was reading something, and it referred to three things as both. So it is no longer obvious to English speakers or writers that both only refers to two. So we have to go back and have some elementary education every now and then. Both refers to two, and there's only two groups that Paul's been talking about so far. One is the Jews, and the other is the Gentiles. So he makes them now one. But we're not talking about Gentile unbelievers or Jewish unbelievers. We're talking about those who are in Christ, but now in Christ, verse 13, who in Christ, believing Jews, that is, those who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and believing Gentiles, though who, those who, Gentiles who have believed in the Jewish Messiah as the one who died for their sins and has provided forgiveness for them and reconciliation, he makes them both one in Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, they were not one. There, they were, there were distinctions. And a Gentile could really not go into the temple unless he was beginning that stage of, uh, there were several stages of being a proselyte. And if you, unless you went all the way to circumcision, which a lot of them didn't do, you would never truly become a Jew or be able to enter in all the way into the temple. So now there's this unity that is there. And this Second thing that he has done is he has broken down the middle wall of separation. So he's our peace. That's what he has done. In describing that a bit further, he made, he is our peace because he made both one and second, he broke down the middle wall of separation. So there's two things there that, that Christ did as in making peace. Now, what is the middle wall of separation? 
what we will see contextually is what we find in verse 15. Verse 15 tells us how he made both one. Verse 14 tells us what he did to make both one. Verse 15 tells us how he made both one. And that starts off with a a participle that is a participle of means. Some take it as a different way, but I think it's best explained as means. He is our peace by, how did he do it? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. That is, so it's going to explain what that enmity consists of. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that's talking about the Mosaic law, the Torah. And then we have a couple of interesting phrases. This is one of those long sentences of Paul's. So he does something. What does he do? He abolishes in his flesh the enmity. But he does it for a purpose. And the New King James translates it so as to, which I find as an awkward way of expressing purpose. It it should be translated more as the ESV translates it, that he might create. So he abolishes for a purpose. Actually, there's two purposes when you look at the structure in the Greek, and that's why I put the ellipses in there and left it out so you catch the flow of thought. By abolishing the law of commandments, first, that he might create, and second, that he might reconcile. So there's two reasons to abolish the law. One is to create something new, and second is to reconcile us, that is, Jew and Gentile, both in Christ. Now, that first block of verses there is taken from the ESV translation, And the second block comes from the NET translation. Now, I disagree with how they understood the participle in verse 15 because they translate it when he nullified. I think most translations take it as means by by abolishing. Nullified is a good translation uh, for instead of abolishing. They both have the same sense. But they translate when he nullified, nullified, he did this, to create. So there in English they used an infinitive to express purpose. He did this to create and to reconcile. So the grammar tells us he abolished the law to do two things. To create something new and to reconcile. That is so important. Because what gets brought together here is Jew and Gentile together in Christ. This is the church. This is who we are as believers in Christ. And there, and this is what Jesus did for us. This elevates the, the, us as church age believers in Christ to a totally new plane above all other believers in all of history. This is part of what Paul talks about at the beginning of Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This is our legal position in heaven. This is who we are. This means one of the implications of this is no believer ever has a right to look around at the circumstances of life and ever have a pity party and say, poor me, and I wish I didn't have all these things happening to me because who you are and what you have is so superior to anything that we see in this life, we can't even uh, articulate it. 
And that gives us a great confidence because we are ambassadors to this world and we have that mission and that needs to inform our identity and the way we think about ourselves. It doesn't matter what other things are going on. They are just superfluous details in our lives. They don't relate to the real mission, which is to be an ambassador to Christ, as we'll see eventually if I get there this morning. So Christ comes to do two things. He's going to abolish the law to create a new man and to reconcile us uh, in one body to God. So these are those two purposes as as seen here by the underline. So as to create, what's the result of that creating? Making peace. So the first purpose is to create this new body, and the result of that is making peace. So the purpose is to create this new body. The result is to create peace, harmony between Jew and Gentile. And frankly, that applies to all races. That in Christ, right now, we we are seeing all this racial turmoil. And one of the difficulties I have in talking to with some people is that they don't understand that they have one, some groups have one perspective, other groups have another perspective, but if you're a believer, you have to have a third p- perspective. We are called to a higher plane, we have a different reality, and we have to live in light of that reality, and we cannot get caught up in this stuff that's happening on this lower plane. And yet there's a lot of Christians who've gotten caught up in this. And that's just pure carnality, the focus is on the wrong thing. We have peace. We need to live in light of that and not get caught up in this worldly turmoil that is energized by pagan thought. And if we don't do that, then we, and and let me tell you, the church never does. The church hasn't gotten this right in 2,000 years, but but that's the standard. That's where we're supposed to be. But unfortunately, too many uh, believers in the church, in the church age, have gotten their eyes completely on the details of life and they don't ever understand this. So, first of all, Christ creates in himself one new man, thus making peace. If there's not peace between believers, then what you're basically saying is, this is wrong. God lied. The scripture's not true. Second thing is, the second purpose, as we saw, was that he might reconcile them both to God, that is, Jew and Gentile to God. And then what's the, what's the result of that? Putting to death, that is, uh, ending the enmity that existed between the two. This is vital. Reconciliation isn't just God, man to God, but it is man to man. That is the application of this. So then in these first verse, the in, uh, excuse me, in the next sentence, in verse 17 and 18 we read, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. And then it's explained in verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, we're going to have to spend some time talking about this because it's translated in English as if there are two main verbs here. He came and he preached. 
but came is a translation of a participle, so it should be understood when he came, he preached. When he came, he proclaimed. It is not, uh, and, and nearly every English translation gets that wrong. Uh, so he proclaimed peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. Now that's the second time we've, or third time that we've seen this allusion to far off and to near, and we'll see the background for that uh, in, in Isaiah in just a minute. And then it ends by telling us that it's through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. See, in the Old Testament, uh, in the dispensation of Israel, only the Jews had access to the Father through the temple. But now there's a difference. We both have equal access to the Father. That's the background for understanding what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 and following related to the baptism by the Spirit, that there is no longer Jew or Greek. Now, there are still ethnic Jews and there are still ethnic Gentiles. But in the body of Christ, there aren't those distinctions anymore. We both have equal access to the Father. And then it goes on to say there's neither bond nor slave. Well, he never did tell Onesimus, oh, you're a Christian now, so that automatically frees you from slavery. He's pointing out that, that in the Old Testament... In the dispensation of Israel, if you were a slave, you didn't have access to God in the temple. Only a free person could have access to God in the temple. And then it says, and there's neither male nor female. Well, Paul, this has been taken by liberal evangelical feminists to mean that there's no distinction at all between men and women and that their their roles are completely interchangeable. Well, that's because they're reading their liberal bias that's been shaped by a pagan world into scripture what the scripture is saying is that just as there's reconciliation between jew and gentile and now both have access by the spirit to the father the same is true for men and women in the old testament there's a courtyard of the women and then they couldn't get any closer to god than that in the old testament there's a courtyard of the gentiles and gentiles couldn't get any closer than that but now all of that has been set aside. Christ in his death on the cross nullified the law so that there would be this new entity where in the spiritual life and access to God, there are no longer those distinctions that were present in the Old Testament. And the reason they were present in the Old Testament is there was a, there was a teaching tool for teaching various things about the spiritual life and about access to God and we'll I'm not, I'll get into that eventually. So now, let's go back and look at the beginning of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, to see how Paul begins this. He starts with the phrase, for he himself is our peace. Now, in this opening verse, Paul explains what Christ did to accomplish his peace. Remember, in the next verse, in verse 15, he's talking about how he did it and what his purposes were. So right now, all we're talking about is what Christ did in uh, abolishing the barrier between Jew and Gentile. He himself is our peace. Now, this is a loaded term. When you use the word peace in any random crowd, you're going to get a lot of answers as to the meaning of peace. There are a lot of people who will think of it as the absence of violence or the absence of war. 
That is one nuance even in the scripture, but that is not the primary nuance. It has to do with a reconciliation between people and the harmony that comes. And that harmony may be harmony with God. It may be harmony in one's thinking, in one's soul. And it may be harmony between nations in which it involves uh, the absence of violence. But that's the essential idea is, is harmony. This is referred to in a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 1. Remember, Colossians and Ephesians were written very close to one another, and they touch on the same themes and same ideas. In Colossians 1, 21 to 22, we read, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, that is Christ, he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So here we have the use of the word reconciliation. We don't have the word peace, but in numerous passages, peace is the result of reconciliation, and they are linked together, and we'll see that in uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2 in just a minute. So we see in this opening line, he is our peace. Now let's put this back in context for just a minute. Because as we get into a passage like this, and we're dealing with what some people will think of as pretty abstract theology or doctrine, we have to understand again how Paul thinks. When Paul is giving you a very practical instruction on how how and why to brush your teeth, he's going to start off with the fact that your physical body was created perfect by God, and you have a responsibility to take care of it. Okay, that's how he thinks, so that everything he is saying which may seem somewhat abstract, is not. It is related and it is germane to understand the application. In the way I've broken down Ephesians, the first three chapters, Paul is talking about the wealth of the church. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That has to do with our identity, how we think of who we are. And we live in a world where people have all kinds, you hear all kinds of nonsense about self-image and all kinds of different things. What the scripture says is the only image that matters is the image of God. It was distorted by sin, and what God is doing in in your spiritual life is to conform you to the image of Christ. That's the only image that matters. That's pretty special. That's really important. And so all this psychobabble that talks about self-image is just that. It's the human viewpoint pagan attempt to try to deal with with uh, the negatives that people have with anxiety and worry and depression and discouragement and all these other things because they're trying to find hope and meaning in something other than God and other than by Jesus Christ. So Paul first has to help us understand the wealth that we have in Christ. That's our identity. And on the basis, once we understand who we are, then it begins to make sense as to why we should live a certain way. That's application. One of the problems that we have in our world and in the silly, superficial, false uh, evangelicalism that comes out of most pulpits today is that they think that all this doctrine in the first three chapters is wrong. Let's just get to the application. What happens if you just teach people the application without understanding why? 
is you turn them into superficial legalists. Because all you do is you give them a list of rules, do this, do this, and do that, and they don't understand why they do it or who they are in Christ or anything else. That's the foundation. That's why Paul spends three whole chapters taking us through who we are in Christ and the wealth and the riches that we have in our identity. It's just phenomenal who we are. And, and we we capture about this much of it in the way we we think and live in the Christian life because we don't spend enough time really focusing on it. Three chapters on the riches, the wealth that we have in Christ, and then the walk. How we live. Walk is always a metaphor for how we live. And the Christian way of life is based on who we are, the first three chapters. If you try to do chapters 4, 5, down to 6, 9, without understanding 1 through 3, you'll fall flat on your face and fail as a believer because you don't understand who you are in Christ. That's what transforms us. So we have the walk of the church in 4, 1 through 6, 9, and then we come back to the fact that when you're walking, you know, all hell is going to break loose because we're living in the devil's world and he doesn't want us walking like Christ, and so the warfare is going to break out all around us. And so we come to that last section Ephesians six ten to 24, and how God has provided us with an armor to protect us when we're in the midst of this uh, spiritual warfare on the planet. So it starts with this phrase in 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Now what's interesting here is the way it starts off in the Greek, and I'm not going to drill down into the minutia of this the Greek phrase, but you have a verb in the Greek, uh, and that is the verb uh, estin, which simply means he is. So the verb itself means he is. But then you have this other pronoun there that is autos, that means himself. So it starts off saying, for he Himself. That's really emphatic. It's talking about Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. It's not the Father. It's not the Spirit. It's He Himself is our peace. But it goes further than that because of some of the nuances and the use of the article in the, in the Greek here. It should be translated for He is in Himself. It's an even stronger statement than saying He Himself but he is in himself in all that he is and all that he did. He is in himself our peace. It's not just he himself, but he as he is in himself is our peace. He is the one who provides this this peace uh, for us. And part of the background for understanding this, I pointed out earlier, we have this language such as in verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we come down in verse 17, uh, Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. This, this is biblical language. It's not a direct application of this Old Testament passage I'll show you in just a minute, but it is it drawing an implication from it. In the past, we've studied that uh, Paul and others in the New Testament often used Old Testament passages in four different ways. 
Some of it's a direct quote in a direct application. Some of it has to do with typology. Some of it has to do, well, this is similar to that. Well, he doesn't use that language of, of a quotation here, but it's, it's that third category. It's, it's similar to, and it's similar to what Isaiah says about God in Isaiah 57, 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now, here's something in- interesting that, that we get into here. First of all, the statement that is made is peace, peace, shalom, shalom. Now, the word shalom is comparable to the Greek word arene, meaning peace, And it has the same range of meanings. It can be an absence of physical violence and hostility. It can have to do with harmony. It has to do with wholeness and health. And so here it's translated, peace, peace to him who is far off. Now, in the context, those who are far off is Jews who aren't living in Jerusalem. And to those who are near, that is those who are close and living in Jerusalem. But it has, it's a millennial and messianic expectation that of those Jews who are far off or in the dispersion and those who are near who are living in Israel, I will heal them. And healing in, in Isaiah is often a synonym for salvation because it views salvation as something that is like a disease, it is though a constitutional defect. It's not like you're just a little bit sick, but that you've got this constitutional defect, which is sin and you're corrupt and you've got an old sin nature and you're separated from God due to, due to, to spiritual death. And so Paul is using this idea and he's applying it to the situation that we have between Jew and Gentile. They are separated. The Gentile is far off. The Jew is near. But now they're both brought together in Christ. For he is in himself our peace. And so this word peace in the New Testament is not going to find its meaning by looking at 5th century B.C. or going through the classical Greek literature to determine how the Greeks used peace, but how peace was used in the Old Testament and its significance in the Old Testament. And so it comes from that, that background of understanding, understanding shalom. And so they have generally the same basic kinds of meaning. But first of all, we have to be reminded that in this context in Ephesians chapter 2, peace relates to two different issues. The first issue is that we run into as we go through the text is the peace between Jew and Gentile. The second is peace between Jew and Gentile and God, between the human race and God. And so when we look initially at verse 14, for he himself is our peace, he's made both one. Contextually, that peace is between Jew and Gentile. But he broadens it very quickly to the fact that God is making in in Christ a new man from the two, thus making peace. So it is, it's a word that, that has to be carefully uh, looked at because it has both of these ideas uh, present in it. 
And ultimately, it is focusing on the peace that comes between us and God. So the first meaning that we see with peace is the idea of a a lack of physical violence. It refers to a state of physical violence, and peace is the harmony and lack of it. And Jesus uses it this way in Matthew 10.34. I think this is a good verse to remember right now. Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. He did in terms of a messianic sense, remember. He's the Prince of Peace. But he's rejected as the Messiah, and so Matthew 10, he's alluding to that. Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring, did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That his presence and his claim would cause reaction and division. A second way that the word peace is used is a state of peace with God in contrast to a state of enmity, hostility, alienation, animosity, or hostility. I repeated that. It has to do with the new harmony that we have with God. So when Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, we'll look at that passage in a minute. When we see Jesus as the Prince of Peace, his primary mission is to bring harmony between us and God. That is its a primary sense that we have in, in the scripture. A third is as a result of that harmony with God, we can have a mental attitude of peace. Now, I've decided to give us a few promises here in case you need to be reminded of them. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, on the one hand, we're not to be anxious or worry or give in to that. But on the other hand, when we are, we go to prayer, we go to God, we constantly do that with thanksgiving. And the result is the peace that comes from God, which is beyond our comprehension. It's not just something that is man-related. Some people have tranquility and contentment because that's just their personality. This goes beyond all of that, and it defends our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then we have what Jesus said. Jesus promises in the upper room as he is, uh, or on the way to, actually on the way to Gethsemane, as he's teaching the disciples about this new spiritual life, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace, not just peace abstractly, but my peace, the peace that Jesus had. Now, now Jesus had peace even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Get the context here. He is walking to Gethsemane. In 15, 20, 30 minutes, he's going to feel the emotional pressure of what's coming the next day, and it's so great that it's forcing the blood out of his capillaries, and he is sweating blood. So when we think of peace, you have to factor that in. doesn't mean we're not going to be in tough situations. It means that we're not going to let the tough situations dictate our state of mind because Jesus, as immutable, never loses that peace, that calm, that tranquility, even though it, he's in the midst of the pressure cooker. The peace is not the absence of the pressure cooker. Peace is not letting the pressure cooker affect your mental attitude. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
So God doesn't like it when we're afraid, when we're worried, when we're anxious. That's not part of the Christian way of life. We will get that way at times, but we have to choose, are we going to let it control us, or are we going to turn to God and claim promises? John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus is facing tribulation, but he has peace. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you. That's how we maintain that stability. Now, the fourth point here is that the New Testament concept is based on that Old Testament word, shalom. The noun, the root noun is the word shalem, which means to be complete or sound. It's the idea of wholeness, the idea of health, the idea of everything being what it's supposed to be. Has the idea, the shalom has the idea of peace or prosperity, wellness, health, completeness or safety. The theological word book of the Old Testament says the general meaning behind the root S-H-L and M, Sheen Lamed Mame, is of completion and fulfillment, of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. So that's what we have in Christ. It's part of his messianic mission. Isaiah 32, 17 is messianic. The work of righteousness will be peace. The righteous Messiah will bring peace. And the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. Takes us back to a passage I'm sure occurred to you already in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, our Everlasting Father, actually Father of Eternity, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So obviously this only happens when he comes and establishes his kingdom in the future. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And see, what we see is these messianic prophecies that emphasize Christ as the source of peace and the one who brings peace are connected by Paul when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, that he, because he is the final sacrifice, remember there's peace offerings in the Old Testament that look forward to what Christ does on the cross. And so that connects the Old Testament to the messianic promise Now, I wanted to bring this verse in here. This is what the angels said when they uh, were announcing the birth of Messiah. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, you may have heard it said that this was a bad translation. Actually, this is based on the majority text. That's what you have in the King James and New King King James. It it is not based on the... um, critical text which says peace to men of men with whom God is well pleased and the reason is it's messianic messianic 
What did the Messiah come to bring based on Isaiah 9, 6? He came to bring peace. And it peace and on earth peace. That's what he's offering is he's offering peace and goodwill to men. You don't have to go to this, this misconception that is, uh, that is in the critical text, but it's not in the majority of manuscripts. This is what's in the majority of manuscripts because this fits the messianic context. It is not offering salvation to everybody. It is offering peace in light of the messianic mission of Christ until he's rejected. Now, Acts 10 is really a good background for the, the coming together of Jew and Gentile. And I just wanted to remind you of this. This is when Peter goes to Cornelius and takes the gospel officially for the first time to Gentiles. And he says it this way, uh, Peter does, the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. So that's the message through the uh, through Israel to the Gentiles is preaching peace. But he also says to them earlier in that, as he's talking to, to Cornelius, he says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. Uh, so he's talking about their, their culture that they, as Jews, as, as law-abiding Jews, they were told that this was not what they were supposed to do. The word that's translated unlawful is not the word you would expect. It is, instead, it is a word that means something that is culturally not allowed, something that's forbidden by the tradition of the Jews. It's, does, it's not the word Torah. It's not something that is outside of Torah. It is, has to, this was the tradition of the Jews among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others is that you just didn't, it was their, their haughty arrogance. And so, uh, Peter comes to realize this and that is why now he goes to the house of Cornelius. And then, uh, to close, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This, in the passage, in the context of Romans 5, connects justification with peace and reconciliation. Because we are reconciled to God now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a mission and here in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Every believer has the ministry of reconciliation, which is another way of talking about giving people the gospel so that they can come to realize they're reconciled to God. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He's committed to us the message of the gospel. Now then, here's the application of all this. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's the mission of believers. That's why we can't get caught up in all of this this nonsense that's going around today. Believers have to stand. We're accountable at a higher level We're called to a higher ethic, a higher standard of living, 
and that we can't get caught up. Politics is interesting. Politics is great. It has to do with a lot of important things in our life. But when people get carried away, as we're watching on the streets and these demonstrations and riots and all of these other things that are going on, no Christian has any right whatsoever to be involved in that for numerous reasons, but mostly because we're called to a higher standard. And therefore, when you act like the world acts, you're living like the prodigal son, and you're living in the muck and the mire with the, with the pigs. And that's where a lot of Christians are today, because they don't understand what our mission is, and they've become distracted by politics. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, Be reconciled to God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be reminded of who we are in Christ, that we have been called for a higher purpose. We have a distinct mission as your ambassadors to proclaim the message of reconciliation, that peace has now been made between Jew and Gentile and between the human race and yourself. And because of that, we can have peace in our own lives. We can have a contentment and tranquility in our thinking and that we cannot be worried, fearful, consumed by all of the chaos and the nonsense that is going on around us, all of the rioting and destruction and everything, that we have been called to announce to the world that there is peace and there is stability and that we can't get trapped into these human viewpoint categories. Father, we pray that you would help anyone listening to this message to understand the hope that we are offered in Christ, the peace, the stability, the tranquility, because our relationship with you is what takes precedence over everything else in life. Father, we pray that they would understand the good news, the great news, the wonderful news that Christ died for our sins and that we can have eternal life, we can have this hope, and we can have this peace and stability that is ours because of what Christ did on the cross. And only when we learn your word can we really see this become part of our daily thinking and part of our daily living. We pray that you challenge us with all that we've learned today. In Christ's name, amen.